So as you know, we've been going through the book of Acts together. You've been reading it at home, and I'm trying to give you an overview of the entire book. So this morning we'll be in chapters 12 and 13. Uh, in chapter 12, Herod had the apostle James killed. And so God kills Herod. And it's interesting how that worked out. Let me read you from Acts chapter 12. It says, uh, Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there for a while. And on the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, this is the voice of a god and not of a man. And immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down and he was eaten by worms and died. Gross, huh? Ugh. Interesting about this story, though, it's not just mentioned in the Bible. There's a secular Roman historian who wrote about this. See, when Herod went to Caesarea, he specifically went for a political meeting. Um, there were some city-states up north that relied upon Herod to provide food, and they were fighting, so this was kind of like trying to make a peace treaty. So he went there maybe on vacation, but also to have this peace treaty. And there was, a, there was a time of games and festivities and a festival. There were a lot of people there. So this was witnessed by a lot of people, and so it makes sense that there would be a record of this in archaeology, and there is. Let me read to you from the writings of Josephus. It says, Herod went down to Caesarea, and there he exhibited shows and games in honor of Claudius. On the second day of these shows, he put on a garment made wholly of silver and of a contexture most truly wonderful. And he came into the theater early in the morning, at which time the silver of his garment, being illuminated by the first reflections of the sun's rays, shone out after a surprising manner. I wonder if he did this on purpose. Probably he did. Has this nice silver clothing on. He stands out in the theater, and then the sun pops up and hits him, and he just radiates. And everybody goes, oh, he's a god. People, ugh. <laughs> Presently, his flatterers cried out, he is a god. Nor did the king rebuke them, nor reject their impious flattery. But looking up, he saw an owl on a certain rope over his head and immediately conceived that this bird was to him a messenger of ill tidings, and he fell into the deepest sorrow. A severe pain also arose in his bowels, and he died after five days severe illness. It makes sense that this event, where the biblical writer says, an angel of the Lord struck him dead, but a secular writer writes, he saw an omen, it freaked him out, and he died. So we know he died. But each story kind of complements the other. For example, in the book of Acts, it says they cried out, he's a god. But it isn't until we read Josephus that we get the details that he had a silver garment on, the sun hit the silver, the radiation off the garment made him look amazing, and that's when they cried out, he's a god. But some people have a problem with this. Josephus wrote, and he died after five days. And the Bible says, the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. And so here's what people do. It just never ceases to amaze me. 
They say, ah, Josephus says he died after five days, so obviously the Bible's wrong here. They do that. Now think about it for a minute. Don't be biased, just for a second. Two ancient documents. Josephus, whom some people have heard about, and the Bible, whom everybody has heard about. Written by witnesses, written by hearsay, a historian. A book trusted to be the word of God for thousands of years, and a, history, a history book with known mistakes. So obviously the Bible must be the wrong one. I don't understand people. But really, I don't see this story conflicting at all. It says, after five days, he died of a severe illness. The Bible says he was struck down by an angel of the Lord, eaten by worms, and died. When? Doesn't say when he died. Just says he got struck. Could have died five days later. I don't have a problem with that. I just think it's cool that it's mentioned in ancient writings. Well, prior to him being struck dead by God, he had killed James, and he had arrested Peter. And his intention was to kill Peter, too. But God had other plans. Angels were busy. While, they were, while Peter was in prison, an angel came and freed him. He escapes. He ends up at somebody's house, and he's knocking on the door. And the lady on the other side, I think her name was Rhoda, said, Who is it? She said, It's me, Peter. Nuh-uh, Peter's in jail. An angel let me out. So she goes back and tells everybody who is praying for Peter. Peter's at the door. Ah, you're imagining things. Let's keep praying for Peter. You ever have faith like that? You pray for something and God answers it. And you, your faith is so small that you can't even see the answer. It's kind of silly, but I can't be criticizing these people because um, I'm sure they were just as godly, if not more so than we are. And God actually heard their prayers, and they were surprised. <laughs> Have you ever been surprised when God answered your prayer? Come on, let me see your hand. Yeah, okay. So we can't throw any stones here. Let's just move over to chapter 13. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, we're now moving from Peter and his friends to the Apostle Paul. When they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. We actually, from this passage of Scripture, can learn about, a lot about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit confuses people. I have heard good, godly men, even people who know the Word of God quite well, refer to the Holy Spirit as it, like it can fill you, or something like that. It's the power of God. But here's what we learn about the Holy Spirit here. We learn that he's a he and not an it. He speaks, separate to me Saul and Barnabas for the work to which I have called them. He commissions. It's the Holy Spirit telling them to send off the Apostle Paul on his first missions trip. He's in charge of the apostles. We learn elsewhere Jesus is in charge of the church. He isn't God's force or power. He is God. And then some people say, well, if he's God, why don't they just say God and, and cut the confusion? I'll explain that in a moment, but let me show you another passage of Scripture that just drives home the fact that the Holy Spirit is not a force. The Holy Spirit is God. I'm in Acts chapter 5. Peter said, Ananias, 
How is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept back for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to men, but to God. So first it says he lies to the Holy Spirit, then it says he lies to God. They're equated. They're the same. He can be lied to. Lying to him resulted in immediate divine judgment. And of course he's equated with God. So, why isn't he just called God? Well, we're going to talk about God this morning, and we're going to talk about what people have heard of this concept, the Trinity. And I want to kind of explain to you where that word comes from. Some people say, Steve, the word Trinity is not in the Bible. You're absolutely right. The word Trinity is not in the Bible. But as you're going to see, the concept is. And uh, for those of you that that bothers, the word Bible is not in the Bible either. So we're good. First Timothy 2.5. Some facts. We're going to start off with some basic facts about God. First Timothy 2.5. There is only one God. Here's what it says. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So the scriptures, without question, without debate, teach that there is only one God. So whatever you hear from me this morning, don't hear that I'm saying there's more than one God. There has always been and always will be one true God. There's lots of phony gods. Heck, you can go to some Chinese restaurants in town and see some of them today little statues with little food offerings before them. People worship idols. People worship all sorts of bizarre things, and they call them gods. But in reality, there's one real God, as the Scripture says. New Testament says it. Old Testament te says it. Listen to what the Old Testament says. This is what the Lord says, Israel's King and Redeemer, the Lord Almighty. I am the first and I am the last. Apart from me, there is no God. Straightforward. There is only one God. However, three beings, and I don't know what other word to use. Maybe you can give me a better one later. Three pe persons, can't say people because then we think human. Three beings are simultaneously called this one God. Now, we come into a problem. How can three be one and one be three at the same time? It's either one or three or three or one. That's confusing. I'll grant you it can be a bit confusing. But please understand what we're trying to do here. We're trying to understand God. And if you have the right to be confused about anything in the universe, you have a right to be confused about God. I mean, you think about God for a minute. How awesome is he? Give me a number. He made all the stars in the universe by just saying, be there. How, how did he do that? I don't know. And how about the first verse of the Bible? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, which we'll look at in a moment. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. How did he do that? And what was he doing two seconds before that? It says, in the beginning. As soon as you ask the word before, that's a time-locked word, and time started in the first verse. Well, if time started in the first verse, how was God already there? But he was. Doesn't make any sense, because it's bigger than we are. So if you have a hard time understanding God's works and God's existence, which you do, of course you might have a difficult time understanding 
God's essence, his person. But we can't make the mistake of what a lot of people do is try to make the Bible fit into their framework. In other words, dumb it down so it makes sense. Rather than accepting it for what it says, confusing or not, some people dumb it down so it fits into their, their world. But don't do that because God's bigger than our world. Let's just see what he says about himself, what the Bible says about him, and go with it, whether we get it or not. God, from the very beginning of the Bible, has always referred to himself in the singular and the plural together. Not in each instance, but throughout the Bible, God refers to himself in the singular and in the plural. First verse of the Bible in the English, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Let's look at it in the Hebrew. Pop it up there. Please read that. I'm going to show off. I can read it. Now, reading it makes you think I'm really good with Hebrew. I'm no Hebrew scholar, but I can read a little bit and translate a little bit. And I did study this when I was studying it in college, so I know this verse pretty well. Here's what it says. Bereshit bara Elohim et hashamayim ve'et ha'aretz. You impressed? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, here's what it means. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This first word is bereshit, and it's three English words together. In the beginning. One Hebrew word, three English words. In fact, this word, the word the, isn't technically written into this word. It's implied. So if I wanted to give you the most literal down to earth, it would be in beginning or in a beginning. But don't take it just at that. Because the word the, when it's implied properly in Hebrew, is just as legitimate as writing it in. It's implied definiteness, and it's part of learning the Hebrew language. Sometimes definiteness, the word the, is written in. Sometimes it doesn't have to be written in because you know it's the. This would be one of those instances. So putting it into English as in the beginning is proper. Next word, bara. The word means he created. Here's a mistake a lot of students make when they first study Hebrew. If they get a test and the professor puts the word bara, and you answer created, you fail. The word is not created. The word is he created. You can't make it they created, was created, to create. It is a phrase. He created. It is two words and only those two words. Okay? So the first word of the Bible is bereshi, in the beginning. The next word in the Bible is he created. So what we have thus far is in the beginning he created. So if I was writing it out in a wooden literal fashion and not trying to make it fit English well, I wouldn't say in the beginning God created. I'd say in the beginning he created. They put the, the verb first in the Hebrew. And then next you have to ask the question, and the Hebrew answers, who created? That's the next word, Elohim. Let's take a look. This is the word Elohim. Now, Elohim, if you were taking a test in Hebrew, you would put the word G-O-D-S. This is the plural word for God. This is the word gods. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. The interesting thing is, 
in the Bible, there are singular words for God too. Some places he refers to himself as a singular word, but this is the one used more often, by far, and it's plural. So what we have so far is in the beginning gods, he created, if you were to put it into English so it makes sense. Who created? God did. Now, if I said, Mr. Weeks went to the mall, and then you asked me who went to the mall, and I said, they did, you'd immediately be confused. Which is it? Did he, who did he go with? No, he went by himself. Who went? Rich. He went by himself. Yes, they did. That's, that wouldn't make sense in English, right? doesn't make sense in Hebrew either, but that's what we're looking at. The first verse of the Bible is telling us, he is God, he alone, yes, they are. Very first verse of the Bible. Now, I'm not giving you anything that anybody who knows Hebrew would argue with. I'm not like, this is secret knowledge and I'm divining and defining it. For no, this is just basic grammar I'm sharing with you. Can't argue with it. You might argue with the implication, but you can't argue with the facts. This is just plain, simple Hebrew, and it makes absolutely no sense whatsoever on our frame of reference. But when we see that God refers to himself in the plural throughout the Bible, a picture begins to develop. By the word, wait, that's the first verse, and you wouldn't know that without looking at the Hebrew. But let's say you don't know any Hebrew and you just read the English. By the time you get to verse 26, you get this. Then God said, let us make man in our image. That's in the English. What are you going to do with that? Who created humans? God. Yes, they did. He even said us. But just to make sure you completely understand, he's not talking about angels or anything else. The very next verse says, and I quote, so God created man in his own image. Singular again. This is what you see from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible. It's more obvious in the Hebrew, but it's very, very obvious also in the English. God's plural nature consists of not a thousand beings or persons, not 20 persons, of three persons, whom we call the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. How do we know this? Because there are three, again, I'm going to use that word beings, even though it's not the right word because there's one being. There are three persons who are called this one God at the same time. Let me give you the verse that I found in the Old Testament that just blew my mind the first time I read it. And it blew my mind because I was raised as a Jew, and Jews don't believe in the Trinity. So when I read this verse, I was like, oh. Hey, I, when, I, when I got to let us create man in our own image, I was knocking on my mom's bedroom door. Hey, mom, reading the Bible, got a problem. Didn't get past the first chapter. It says, it says, let us create man in our image. What's that all about? I don't know. Maybe it was the angels. No, angels didn't create people. And the next verse says, God, she said, I don't know. Call your grandfather. <laughs> no. Then I got to Isaiah. Listen to this. Listen to me, O Israel. I am he. I am the first. I am also the last. Indeed, my hands have laid the foundation of the earth, and my right hand has stretched out the heavens. Who's talking? I'm, I'm serious. Who's talking? Answer me. God, of course he is. Yeah, you know me. I was going to trick you, and I'm not tricking you. So we've got somebody speaking here. He calls himself God. 
Specifically, he calls himself the creator. My hands have stretched out. I am the first, I am the last. I've laid the foundations of the earth and my hands have stretched out the heavens. No question about it, the, the speaker here is God. We go down a few verses to verse 16 and then listen to what it says. Come near to me and hear this. I have not spoken in secret from the beginning. From the time that it was, I was there. And now the Lord God and his spirit have sent me. So we've got the creator saying that the Lord God and his spirit have sent him. I started off telling you a fact. How many gods are there? One God. And I read to you that God created the heavens and the earth, and he was commissioned by the Lord God and his spirit. You say, wow, Steve, that's, that's unique. That's why Christians believe in the doctrine of the Trinity, because we have no choice. This is what the Bible teaches. And we're the only religious movement that believes this about God. There are other religions that trust the Bible, but none of them believe in the Trinity. So it's easy to understand. We're right. They're all wrong. <laughs> all right. I love visuals. This is God. Okay? Now, there is one God. Boom. But God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. By the way, each one of these in the Bible is called God. All right? I'm going to show you, as you saw in Isaiah 48, and as we're going to see again in another passage of Scripture, not one God with three different names. One God consisting of three beings simultaneously. Now, one of the mistakes people make trying to dumb it down in understanding this is they think this is just one God with three different modes or names. You know, sometimes he appears as the Father, sometimes the Son, sometimes the Holy Spirit. We're, that's not the case. The Father is not the Son. I mean, the Father and the Son communicate to each other. They talk. So obviously, the Father is not the Son. And the Son is not the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, it's necessary that I go away so that I can send the Spiriter. Send the Spiriter? How did I get that? So I can send you the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is obviously not the Father. We see God created the heavens and the earth and the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. So the Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Father, but all together are God. So you might say, but the Holy Spirit is God. See, like that. So three persons, three identities, the speaker, the creator. He then says he's commissioned by God and by the Holy Spirit. Now I told you, from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible, it's the same. From the very first verse in the Bible all the way through. Some people think that uh, the doctrine of the Trinity is developed in the New Testament. Well, if it was, we've got a problem. Because that means God changed from Genesis 1 to John 1. But now let's look at John 1, and we'll see he didn't change at all. John 1, the gospel, first verse. In the beginning was the Word, just like the first verse of Genesis. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. 
The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him, nothing was made that was made. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The Word's the Creator, just like Isaiah said. He's God, but He's with God. Ah, when you look at it all together, it makes sense. And verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The Word, who was God, became flesh. Jesus is God in human flesh, and we call Him the Son of God to help differentiate Him, differentiate him from the rest of the Godhead. One more way I can describe this for you, and then I'm done. Because it's, it's difficult to understand God, there's nothing in creation really like Him. He's unique. But I can give you something that at least gets you halfway there. All right, you scientists, what did I just draw? A molecule of water. Water is called, everybody knows, H2O. Two parts hydrogen, one part oxygen, right? Oxygen, hydrogen, hydrogen. The smallest drop of water consists of three things. One, two, three. If I were to take one of those off, I wouldn't have water anymore. I'd have something else. It would have to be just like this to be water. That's the closest I can get for you. In my mind, this is what the scripture teaches about God. He is unique and he is amazing. All of that because the Holy Spirit commissioned Barnabas and Saul. And I wanted to explain to you how all that worked. But my series is called the, the, the Acts of the Apostles, Their Miracles and Their Message. So par for course, we definitely have a miracle in this set of chapters. There was a false prophet who goes, Saul goes to preach the gospel to a governor, really high guy in the Roman Empire, and this false prophet is trying to dissuade him from believing the gospel. So Saul strikes him with blindness right on the spot, which shuts him up, shows the governor that Saul's right because his power is more powerful than the power of the false prophets. He listens to the gospel. He gets saved. By the way, this guy, his name's Sergius Paulus. He's mentioned in the book of Acts, and he's also mentioned in the archaeological record. The miracles are cool, but the message is what's most important. And for the last couple of weeks, it was their miracles and their message. And you've seen the message each week for the last several weeks, and it's the same message. Each of the apostles uses their own words, but gives the same message. I've got a few paragraphs here that I want to read. I condensed a portion of Paul's message so you can hear the type of thing he said. Talking about Jesus, he said, while he's preaching the gospel, the people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus, yet in condemning him, they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. Though they found no proper ground for the death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. 
we tell you the good news. What God promised our fathers, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. As it's written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have become your father. Therefore, my brothers, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is justified from everything you could not be justified from by the law of Moses. When the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. Here's what the Bible teaches. Here's what their message is in summary. The Son of God came to earth as a human being. He had to come as a human because that's the only way he could die. He came specifically to die because our sins warrant death. But instead of us dying for our sins, which wouldn't atone for them, it would just kill us, he sent a Savior. When he dies for our sins, he makes atonement and purifies our sins. His sacrifice was so powerful that not only the sins you've committed in the past are taken care of, but the sins you might commit in the future are also taken care of. What's required of us to trust him with our souls, to believe he died and rose again, and to follow him? Sin is bad. We've got to understand that. It killed Jesus. He died for sin. We can't be walking in the hands of the devil and in the hands of God at the same time. We have to choose sides. And he wants you to choose his side. I don't know if you've made a decision yet to follow Jesus. I would encourage you to do so. If you'd like further discussion on this topic, please don't hesitate to contact me or anyone else you saw up here on stage. I'm sure they'd be happy to share with you, happy to share with you the message. Uh, please bow your heads. Lord God, thank you for showing us the truth of who you are. Even in your, your being, you are incomprehensible. You are simply amazing, as we sang earlier. But I do pray that you would continue to bless us, even as you have. Bless us with understanding. Bless us with love, not just so that we can absorb it, but that we can give it out to others. Bless us with patience. And bless us with boldness to share the love of Jesus with others that they might turn from their sins and be saved. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen.